Hello and welcome to the Grox Science Radio Show. I'm Forrest Goulden, and I'll be your host for today. Flash back with me for a moment back to November 2010. That November, I was in San Diego, California, for the Society for Neuroscience's annual meeting. One day, I left the convention center and headed down Fifth Avenue looking for lunch. Just off Fifth Avenue, about a block from the convention center, I saw an old but pristine Volkswagen van that stood out just a little bit. There were cardboard signs propped up in almost every window of the van. A man outside the van was holding posts with more signs on them. There were signs on sandwich boards propped up next to the van and even on the roof of the van. The signs were all handwritten and densely packed with letters. They talked about the U.S. government, they talked about the CIA, and they talked about mind reading. I must have walked past this van a half a dozen times during the convention. Probably everyone who went to the convention, more than 30,000 people, walked by these signs at some point during the week. I don't think it's a stretch to say that none of the neuroscientists who read those signs took the warnings very seriously. Fast forward to the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C. in 2011, just a few weeks ago. There was no man with multiple signs talking about mind reading. He apparently didn't make the journey cross-country for the meeting. There was, however, a bioethics symposium that broached the topic of mind reading and an opinion piece on CNN about mind reading and our need to be careful. This was not a joke. This was not something that neuroscientists laughed at. In fact, everyone took this very seriously. Paul Root Wolpe, the author of that CNN piece and a prominent bioethicist who chaired the symposium, has written extensively on mind reading. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Wolpe. We'll hear his answers to my questions, and we'll learn why we should take the idea of mind reading seriously in just a moment here on the Grox Science Radio Show. Today's guest here on the Grox Science Radio Show is Paul Root Wolpe. Dr. Wolpe is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Bioethics, the Raymond F. Shinazi Distinguished Research Chair in Jewish Bioethics, a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Sociology, and the Director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. He also is an editor for over a dozen peer-reviewed journals and a fellow of multiple professional societies. Today, Dr. Wolpe is joining us to discuss what he sees as a rapidly approaching issue for neuroscientists, bioethicists, and the population as a whole. That issue is mind reading. Dr. Wolpe has opined on this issue in a number of venues, most recently in an article posted to CNN on November 11th. Dr. Wolpe, thank you for joining us today, and let me ask you first, why discuss this issue now? The ability of neuroscientists to probe into the human mind has been advancing at a rapid rate. And I'm not sure people really recognize how um, good we have gotten at being able to take brain images and apprehend from those brain images thoughts, ideas, even images that are in people's mind. And I really believe that it's important when we begin to see an advanced developing that's going to change the very nature of the way in which we gather information like this will, I believe, that we take some time before it becomes a complete reality, before it's actually operationalizable, to think about what the ethical, social, and legal implications are so that we don't have to play catch-up when these technologies actually begin to be applied. 
Can you give us an example of an experiment or a type of experiment that worries you? Yeah. So there have been quite a few of them. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, <clears throat> we can now look at people when they are uh, thinking of an image or looking at an image and we can begin to actually, and, and at the beginning it was very simple images like a cross or a square. But now um, there's been an experiment where people looked at very naturalistic images, landscapes, portraits, uh, pictures of, um, you know, vegetables on a table like in the classic paintings. Um, and the scientists could reproduce generally um, what those people were looking at by uh, looking at their brain scans. Uh, Mitchell and Juice, two researchers at Carnegie Mellon, gave people 58 nouns to think about objects, you know, uh, wine glass, bicycles, broccoli, whatever they were. And after looking at the brains of these people, when they thought about these 58 objects, they then took two more random objects, so table, and um, they predicted what the pattern of activation in this person's brain would look like when they thought of that object, an object they had never imaged before in that person's brain, and were remarkably accurate um, in knowing how in that particular brain the word table was going to look. And that is just a small step away from being able to image a brain and say, this person is thinking about a table. We're almost there already. And, and one last really interesting study, they, um, they did a study where they found some lucid dreamers. These are people who can, dr while they're dreaming, while they're sleeping, they are aware of the fact that they're dreaming and have some control over their dream. And they asked these people to clench their left or right hand in their dream. So um, there was a, it's a very small end. There's only one or two people who could manage to do it. But what was interesting about it was they imaged those people while they were having that dream. And even though their hands didn't physically clench outside the dream, the researchers could tell exactly when they were clenching their hand in the dream because the part of the brain, the motor cortex, that controlled clenching would activate. So think about those three studies. We now can tell what image you're thinking of, what words you're thinking of, and what you're dreaming of in very, very simple ways, but still in ways that portend further advances that really might um, give us pause when we think about an idea such as our privacy um, and our right to keep our own thoughts to ourselves. All of the examples you just gave require maps. In visual cortex, for example, there is a defined topography representing the visual field. Motor cortex similarly contains representations of our musculature and, in the example you gave dealing with nouns, scientists spent many tens of hours building unique maps of each individual's brain. Do you think it's a small step or a big step to go from this map-based approach to a point where we're reading processes such as emotions or thoughts or decision-making trees that don't necessarily involve maps? Of course, that's an enormous um, leap. But we've actually seen studies where emotions and thoughts have be we've begun to chip away at that. Emotions are actually much easier. We can easily image emotions. That is, half the studies done on brain imaging look at amygdala activation, which is the site of uh, fear and excitement. And, and that's another example, by the way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Liz Phelps of SUNY did an amazing study where she took 
white males and black males, um, showed them and then gave them a, scale, a paper and pencil test. And in that paper and pencil test was a hidden scale of racist ideation. So the people took the test but didn't realize that what was being measured there was how they thought stereotypically about race and also some of their fear and anxiety about race. And then she put them in a scanner and she showed them pictures of uh, familiar white males and familiar black male faces, so celebrities, sports stars, politicians, and then unfamiliar black and white male faces, so random pictures of black and white males. And what she found was in the white males only, their scores on on this racist ideation scale were correlated with amygdala activation when they saw pictures of unfamiliar black males. So it makes sense when you think about it. That is, if you have some anxiety about race, then when you see the object of that anxiety, you're going to feel some anxiety. But if you turn it back around and say, you know, imagine using that now as a as a defense or or wanting to know if this person has racist ideation. We can't do this yet, understand. But the, but the potential is there for me to know something about you. I don't even have to, I never have to talk to you. I never have, I just have to put you in a brain scanner and show you pictures. And I may be able to find out profound things about you, such as how you think about race. So there are all kinds of, and there are many other studies like this. We can tell what languages you read. So if I want to know if, if I capture you on a field of battle and I want to know if you read a language, whatever the target language is that I'm, my country is fighting at that moment, I can put you in a scanner and flash up words in various languages, watch your reading areas, and when languages, when words come up in the target language, I can see if you can read it. All of these point to our ability to look into people's minds, bypass having to actually interview them or speak to them, and get pieces of information that we might want for legal reasons, security reasons, military reasons. It's tough. It is, of course, much more complicated and more difficult than I'm making it sound. Uh, it's, you can't actually brain image someone against their will. That is, they have to cooperate with you in some ways. But the science is moving very fast, and I just think it's time to start having a conversation about how and whether we want to use this technology under things like a court order, where right now the court can take my DNA, a hair sample, semen. They can, um, they can, they can, in the United States at least. Um, they can actually uh, force me to give uh, all kinds of physiological and test samples if they think it's necessary for a case. So is the time going to come in the near future where a court can, can force me into a brain scanner to try to get a piece of information from my mind that they want? We're very far away from that, but do we really want to wait until it's up in front of the Supreme Court before we even start talking about it as a society? So far, you've talked about when minds might be read against the will of the individual in question. But mind reading doesn't always have to be against the will of the individual whose mind is being read. It could be used, for example, to allow a paralyzed individual to move an artificial arm. What's your position on something like that? So we already are researching that, and it's actually already been done. There have been people here at Emory, where I am, for example, there was a man, JR, who had locked-in syndrome, and they put electrodes in his brain and allowed him for the first time to communicate, which I think is a wonderful application of this. And I am all for voluntary use of this technology. Um, there may be many therapeutic applications. There could be civil applications. What I'm arguing against and all I'm arguing against is 
involuntary use of this application. I do not think if privacy means anything, it means the right to be the master of my own thoughts. It means the right to reveal the inner workings of my mind only how and when I want them revealed. And it seems to me that um, allowing anyone access to my thought processes, should that ever become possible, um, is the deepest and most profound kind of violation of self. So what I'm arguing against is coercive use, involuntary use alone. And I have written about and been supportive of therapeutic and voluntary use of this technology. Your argument then is much more that we should control where these technologies are used and not so much the development of these technologies. Exactly right. Do you think that approach will be effective? Well, you know, the answer is yes and no. So, for example, take court-ordered use of this. I have predicted for a number of years that there will come a point um, at some time in the next probably five to seven years when someone is going to want to admit this kind of evidence into a case and it will go up to the Supreme Court um, for a number of reasons. For example, um, uh, one of my students and I wrote an article for a law journal in which we asked the following question. Imagine you're in the United States and you are accused of a crime and the court can brain image you and find a piece of information that would convict you or exonerate you and you refuse. So can the court coerce that information? Well, the court cannot coerce you to admit whether or not you've, let's say, killed that person because it violates your Fifth Amendment right against testimonial self-incrimination. The Fifth Amendment doesn't say you can't incriminate yourself because if my DNA incriminates me, I can't deny it to the court under self-incrimination. The court can take it anyway. All I can deny the court is my testimony, and that means verbal testimony, it means written, it means nodding or gesturing. The court has broadly interpreted what testimony means. Now let's imagine they can go and get a piece of information from my brain. Is that testimony? Is that testimonial information? Or is that more like a DNA test or, a, or an x-ray? That is, it's just an image of my body. And the answer, of course, that's so interesting here is it isn't either of those. That is, it is neither testimonial nor non-testimonial. It is something brand new. It's unique and it's unprecedented. And therefore, at some point, the court will have to decide whether my brain image, whether what I'm thinking about, whether the way in which thoughts are encoded in neuronal you know, um, st stimulation and blood flow, which is really what we look at, whether that is protected under the Fifth Amendment. And you're going to have a whole series of those kinds of questions where we take this very new technology and we have to think about what it means. I mean, one of the, throughout all of human history, without a single exception ever, at any time, even once, since we crawled out of the trees, the only information you can get from a human being, you get through their peripheral nervous system, whether it's speech, whether you're talking about galvanic skin response, heart rate, perspiration, gesture, it doesn't matter. You could never throughout history once get any really meaningful information directly from someone's brain. Phrenology tried it for a while thinking they could tell something about a person by the shape of their skull correlating to areas of the brain. That was a, uh, you know, <laughs> that was, you see how many phrenologists there are around today. So that wasn't exactly successful. But now for the first time in human history,
we can get information directly from the brain bypassing the peripheral nervous system. That's a brand new kind of information. You don't get that very often. It's, it's absolutely new. And so we don't know how to think about it. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't have a vocabulary for it yet. We still have to use the pre-brain imaging vocabulary to talk about things that will have great implications for us. So that's a perfect example of it. Is, what, is your thought testimonial? If we can apprehend it without you actually having to testify, um, the courts are going to need to make decisions like that and those decisions are not going to be based on fact as much as opinion. And so if the popular opinion is we don't want the government in our brains, that I believe that will strongly influence how the Supreme Court decides that case. And so, yes, we have some control over what governments do. Am I naive enough to believe that if we say don't do this, nobody's going to do it? Of course not. You know, the, the, the government will in certain cases, take this uh, technology and use it in Guantanamo Bay or, you know, in the field or wherever they need to use it for military purposes. I'm not sure how you stop that, but what I am sure is it will be used a lot more if public doesn't make a strong statement about trying to control it as much as possible. Do you think there has been a trend historically? As science has come up with things like fingerprinting and DNA and even phrenology, to use the technology first and then decide on the limits of that use later? It's an organic kind of process, actually. I mean, <clears throat> these, um, these technologies emerge and there's a conversation about them. So when fingerprints first were proposed to be used legally, the big question was, is it really true that they're unique? I mean, how do you prove that? How do you, especially in the state of science as it was back then, how do you prove that there isn't someone somewhere amongst the billions of people on this planet who have my fingerprints? And so that the real issue around fingerprints was not was primarily their uniqueness and whether that could be shown to be true enough to to pass. Um, you know, there there are two in American law. There are two tests. That one's called the Daubert test. One's called the Fry test. It's not important to go into details, but they're the two standards that are used by courts to decide whether or not a technology is at the point at which it, it can be admitted into evidence. And judges decide based on things like peer-reviewed articles and all of that. So how do you get to a point where you know that a technology is ready? And with fingerprints, it was the real question was the question of uniqueness. But once it was shown to the satisfaction of the course that it was unique, nobody objected to it because, you know, you're leaving, it's kind of like objecting to leaving behind any trace at a crime scene. A fingerprint wasn't, they didn't come into your house and, you know, force you to, um, uh, you know, take a fingerprint that had nothing to do with the crime the way a brain scan does, right? This was trying to correlate a piece of evidence they found to you, which is an old and, you know, very valid, if they find a hair at a crime scene, they, they, try to match it to your hair. So this was very much in keeping with the spirit of what had gone before. It was just a new way to do it. So these technologies come up periodically and, and society thinks about them and talks about them and the courts think about them and talk about them. And somehow over time, courts, military and other groups begin to develop some feeling about whether they should be used or not. Polygraphy is a good example there because the courts don't allow polygraphy, but they don't 
disallow it because people don't like it. People love it. In fact, often want to use it. And the courts still don't allow it. They don't allow it because they don't pass the test of reliability that is necessary uh, to admit them into evidence. Um, an Institute of Justice study uh, done comprehensively on polygraphy about a, less than a decade ago, maybe about a decade ago, uh, concluded that they're no better than chance in the courtroom situation. Now, what happens if we have brain imaging technology that's much better than chance, that has 70, 80 percent reliability, who knows? The courts are going to be a lot less reluctant. And by the way, another part of this is, is a very uh, energetic um, enterprise right now to create a brain imaging lie detection system. And there are many, many places doing that. There are many scientists doing that. Um, the government's very interested in that. Uh, the government has already given soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq these ridiculous handheld lie detection devices that use voice strain as an indicator. They're, they're absurd. They're, they're, their possibility of actually detecting lies might be 51% instead of 50%. But they're actually more effective because the people who they capture, who they use this on, don't know how bad these are at actually detecting lies. So they're scared of them. They probably tell the truth more often just because they're holding this thing. So it's a placebo effect more than anything else. But imagine if they actually had an effective lie detector instead of these ridiculous um, uh, you know, handheld things. They would use it in a heartbeat. I don't, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that we have some control over how these are used, but ultimately we all have to understand that um, once this technology is perfected, if it ever is, governments will use them whether we like it or not. You've mentioned the role of the public in deciding when mind reading is appropriate. Do you worry that the explosion of social media has decreased the value we place on our privacy to the point where it will be harder to generate public action against what you see as inappropriate uses of mind reading? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. There may be a generational difference here. Um, I'm 54 years old, and I know people of my generation, many of whom are very involved in social media, uh, as I am, but did not actually grow up in the bosom of social media. We weren't weaned on Facebook. It came up uh, in our adulthood. Uh, I, it would be interesting to know and see whether people uh, of, you know, of the age, I don't know, maybe 40 and above or something like that, whatever the right cutoff is, whether those people have a greater concern about this kind of thing than uh, younger people do. It's clearly true that they have stronger concerns about privacy in general. But I'm not really sure that anybody is going to feel comfortable about the idea of a government being able to um, you know, actually breach that zone of privacy that's in, encapsulated by the skull and say, uh, you know, just because I don't mind sharing personal things on Facebook, it's okay for the government to peer into my brain. I'm hoping that even uh, the younger generation will see that as a violation. Dr. Wolpe, we here at Grox like to play a game we call the Grokatron 5000. For this game, we'll give you five names, and we'd like to ask you a question, the same question about each name. Given your expertise in neuroscience, bioethics, and mind reading, we thought we'd ask you if you knew what the following individuals were thinking. First up, Charlie Sheen. What was he thinking? Uh, no, I don't know. In fact, I, I, I'm really quite skeptical about whether he was thinking at all. Okay. What about Tiger Woods? 
Oh, I know what he was thinking, but he was thinking with the wrong head. Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Well, he's a guy whose uh, emotions always get the better of him. Uh, he's you know, known as a crier, and we've uh, done some really interesting neuroscience that shows that uh, the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain, and the rational system of the brain are often at odds, and uh, that's when we have our greatest conflict. And I think in, uh, in Speaker Boehner, they tend to be at odds more often than with most of us. Okay. Up next, President Barack Obama. Um, there, it's just the opposite. I think that, they, that, that President Obama is ruled entirely by the rational side of his brain and um, might be a, a little better for him and for the country if he uh, let the emotional side of his brain loose a little every once in a while. Um, uh, I think that, that that would benefit his presidency and would benefit the country. Last name for you, Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, I'm from Georgia, so he's a, I mean, I'm in Georgia now, so he's, he's one of the hometown people here. Um, I don't even think Newt Gingrich knows what goes on in Newt Gingrich's brain, so uh, I'd be the last one to try to figure it out. Dr. Wolpe, thank you for joining us here on the Grok Science Radio Show and for playing our game, the Grokatron 5000. Sure, my pleasure. If you are interested in hearing more from us, you can visit us on the web at www.groks.net. The Grok Science Radio Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. You can also always email us at science at groks.net. Thanks for listening to us today, and if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For the Grok Science Radio Show, and for Elise Kovic, Joanna Rao, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Forrest Golden.